0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I will be speaking with Kyle G. Volk, Associate Professor of History at the University of Montana. Our conversation is on his book, Moral Minorities and the Making of American Democracy, published by Oxford University Press. Volk provides a compelling narrative of how 19th century Americans negotiated the tension between majority rule and minority rights in between representative democracy and popular democracy. He focuses on debates in the antebellum northern states where moral reform efforts of Sabbatarians, temperance activists, and racial segregationists circumvent its representative government to assert their social vision through direct majority rule. Book shows that some Americans rejected majority reform projects of moral uplift as depotism. Non-elite minorities challenged the popular democracy initiatives that infringed on their constitutional rights to work on Sunday, sell and drink alcohol, and have access to public transportation. Immigrants, blacks, abolitionists, liquor dealers, Catholics, Jews, Seventh-day Baptists, and others engage in a proactive defense. They develop techniques to protect their rights through legal arguments, moral suasion of the press, and political action. The moral minorities of the 19th century bequeathed the strategies for political and legal activism deployed in the 20th and 21st centuries by ethnic minorities and gay rights advocates. Volk's work illuminates our understanding of American democracy and minorities' position within it. Here's my conversation with Kyle G. Volk. Now let me introduce you to the author, Kyle G. Volk. Kyle, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book has adds much to the understanding of how our democracy works. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Moral Minorities.
1: Well, I'm a, I'm a historian. I work at the University of Montana. Um, and I grew up on the East Coast, and I went to college in Boston. And really, some of the earliest ideas for the book Came about while I was a student at Boston College, and I was working as a bartender at a restaurant outside of Fenway Park. Um, And one thing that struck me, among many things, uh, was that the Red Sox faithful, Red Sox Nation, would kind of pour into this restaurant that I worked at, um, that I worked at, and they would do this on Sunday, and they would come in early at 11 o'clock in the morning when we opened and they'd want to get a drink before they headed to the game, which started at 1 o'clock. The trouble was that we couldn't serve alcohol until noon um, on Sundays, and the people would be there, they'd wait, they'd actually be kind of desperately craving uh, their drink, and when the clock struck noon, they kind of would line up at the bar and demand their beverage, and then they would drink for an hour before they stumbled off to the game. And I've, I've watched this week after week, and I was kind of amazed at how the Sunday Law of Massachusetts, Massachusetts was dictating so much social behavior, how people's lives in that on Sundays were structured um, by this what I considered at the time a very small micro regulation. So I was a history major, and I went about studying the history of Sunday legislation in Massachusetts. And found all sorts of things. Um, I found in the early 1960s that a a variety of Americans challenged Sunday laws across the country um, on religious freedom grounds. And that was somewhat predictable to me. It was the 1960s. It was the era of the Warren Court. The Supreme Court was striking down various measures that had to do with church and state, Bible reading in schools, school prayer, etc. But it was... I was surprised to find that they upheld the constitutionality of Sunday laws. They said they did not um, violate religious freedom. But what I also found in my research is that in Massachusetts and in other states, there was a series of legal cases in the mid-19th century in which almost the exact same arguments were made. And I found litigants, Jewish litigants, Seventh-day Baptists, some German immigrants, were challenging Sunday laws in the mid-19th century on religious freedom grounds, and they were also using the language of minority rights. They said said that, you know, we are uh, a religious minority or a cultural minority, and our rights are being infringed by the Protestant majority's Sunday law. And I was like, wow, how is that possible, that in the mid-19th century, folks were making those types of arguments, which at the time struck me as so kind of post-World War II, so 1960s. So I eventually went to graduate school, um, put that project on the shelf for a while, and I I came back to that topic and decided to frame a research project that that asked questions about how Americans in the mid-19th century thought about majority rule and minority rights, what types of issues drove those concerns to the fore. Um, and my book is really a product of, of, of those questions.
0: Okay, before we get into the specifics in the book, well, this is in your book. Let's talk about the relationship between majority rule, minority rights, in the founding of the nations, how the framers were trying to, to deal with that. And, and what was interesting was I never thought of it as minority rights being trying to protect elites. Right. From the mob
1: <clears throat> exactly, yeah um, I mean so one of the one of the big questions I have uh, in, the, in the book is very much tied to this and it's it's a question of how did minority rights become the concern of everyday seemingly ordinary Americans and not elites and as you suggest in your question at the time of the constitutional founding, folks like James Madison, uh, and John Adams, they were concerned about the tyranny of the majority. They were concerned about minority rights. Um, but curiously enough, they weren't concerned about, say, African-Americans or religious minorities or cultural cultural minorities. They were concerned about the rights of the property elite or even slaveholders to some extent, right? They were concerned that um, everyday ordinary Americans would be um, – Kind of propertyless, that they wouldn't have wealth, uh, that that majority of people would form and pass measures um, with the power of the government that would infringe upon the property rights of people like James Madison and John Adams, who were wealthy in that society. So there are concerns that the constitutional founding were to protect the rights of the property or the elite uh, minority, very different than what we think about today. I think.
0: I mean, the the irony of this. Uh how this was turned it actually uh, t- to use for ordinary people is, I think it's just really, it was fascinating to me. I never thought of it that way. It was kind of new. I thought, yeah, I knew about minority rights, but I didn't realize how much it was vested in, in elites and how they were afraid that the majority would vote would vote to take away their property or their wealth or uh whatever, which we still have that issue in America today.
1: We do, but I don't think we think of it as a minority rights issue, right? We, we think about a minority rights issue in a much different context. Um, and, and what I describe in the book um, is, is how that came about. In other words, how did the concerns of the elite founders, um, their concerns about minority rights transform? And I suggest in the book that that, that happened in the mid-19th century.
0: Okay, let's talk about uh, representative government and uh, versus, you know, direct democracy. Sure. And also how this uh, moral majority came about. What yeah. what was the the campaign to create a moral majority? Uh, how did that come up come about?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I mean, I think. One of the major arguments of the book is this, this transformation in minority rights thinking, this um, emergence of the concern for minority rights among everyday ordinary folks was driven by a new force in American politics that developed in the 40 years before the Civil War. And that was the rise of evangelical moral reform, um, Protestant evangelicals, were very concerned that Americans were behaving badly, that they were drinking too much, that they were not going to church on Sunday, that for some of them that they were um, holding slaves, um, that they were gambling, that they were consorting with prostitutes, and a kind of great swell of religiosity took over the nation beginning in the 1820s, 1830s, or peaking in in those decades. And out of that came all of these moral reform societies, um, groups dedicated to the eradication of such vices as alcohol consumption or slaveholding, holding um, And those folks tried to change, uh, the, the moral reformers of the day tried to change the kind of everyday habits of Americans, wanted them to drink less and then not drink at all, or wanted them to give up slaveholding. wanted them to celebrate the Sabbath in a proper way, not a festive way, but in a way that was... Uh, religious and pious, um, and again, they formed organizations to, to go after everyday uh, behavior, but they eventually got interested in public policy, and they wanted laws to change. They wanted the federal government to stop delivering the mail on Sundays. They wanted state and local governments to stop licensing the sale of liquor, et cetera, et cetera. And once those moral reformers got into the realm of public policy, these moral questions became uh, pretty divisive. And um, sparked a whole range of, of political contestation.
0: But wasn't this uh, based on a, repub- a representative government, the idea that you had to have uh, a moral populace that would elect upright leaders who would make upright laws? Uh, yeah. So it was. It wasn't just uh, about religion. It was also about what kind of political. Life we would have.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this, so this is happening, this rise of evangelical moral reform is happening at the same time that American political life is changing, and everyday Americans uh, are coming to exercise more power in the political system. The vote is expanding, for example, for, um, Propertyless white men, people who didn't have the vote in the past, are, are now having the ability to, to vote. Party politics are developing uh, in a new way that are giving everyday people access to uh, politicians and, and influence. And a lot of the evangelical reformers are, are, were quite concerned that everyday people were having you know, new political power in this kind of rising democratic order. Uh, and they wanted to make sure that those those people that were go- that were newly coming to participate in political life were moral that they were upstanding uh, citizens that they were going to elect the right type of people uh, to office. So that's also, as you suggest, driving you know a lot of this uh, moral movement of the day.
0: Now you're looking at the antebellum period and the early 19th century where capitalism is is taking is flight. And what was interesting to me is how the Sunday laws were were interconnected with the rise of capital capitalism and market economies in terms of giving laborers a day off. So there's a there's an economic there's a religious component to those laws. Can you a political uh, component to Sunday laws? It, it weren't just religious strictly.
1: Right. No, I mean, I, I think um, for reformers who were often businessmen, moral reformers and, and businessmen were often united. And, you know, you might think that businessmen would want, you know, their shops to be open seven days a week, right, so they could sell more and more. But actually, uh, folks, uh, during the 1830s and 1840s, look to state government, look to the law, look to Sunday laws as a way to kind of, not put the brakes on market capitalism, but to order it in particular ways um, so that businesses wouldn't be open seven days a week. There'd be a six-day work week, and then you'd have one day uh, apart from work. They were also quite concerned about what their wage workers were doing on Sundays. Um, they wanted them showing up to work on Monday refreshed, sober, not hungover, over, et etc. So Sunday laws became a way to police alcohol consumption uh, on, on the Christian Sabbath.
0: It sort of reminds me of later reform with the 40-hour week.
1: Yeah, I mean, in what ways?
0: Well, in the way that uh, people were advocating for a limitation of how many hours you were allowed to work because people were just exhausted. And it seems like there's a, probably a connection there. I'm not sure, but it seems like, of course, the the context totally changes, but... But it seems that they're all both related to capitalism and market economies and labor and making that were labor were people were labor movements at that time uh, talking about Sabbath day. Sabbath is a day off or they, not? Were.
1: They, they They definitely were. I mean, so some of this action in the 1840s and 1850s coincided with the 10 hour movement, which was one of the first movements to uh, restrict the hours of, of work. Um, but early labor groups. In those, in those decades were suspicious of moralists who were trying to use Sunday laws to kind of limit what people could do on Sunday The absolute labor groups absolutely supported uh, a day of rest uh, on Sunday but they wanted to be able to do what they wanted to do uh, on Sunday and not be told that they had to be in church or at home having a quiet restful Sabbath. The working classes of the antebellum period were in general more supportive of a day of leisure, um, a day when they could do things that they couldn't do when they were working, and that meant going out in public, engaging in the new consumer economy, Um, and also um, if they were German immigrants heading to beer gardens, if they were Irish immigrants, which many of them were, uh, heading to uh, grog shops and dram shops.
0: Now, the Sunday laws, they weren't just six days and then one day off. It was Sunday specifically that right. day, which caused problems for Jewish and Seventh Day Baptist. Let's talk about what problems did that cause for them.
1: So by the 1840s, um, there's a couple of things in play. I mean, the, the Sabbath reform movement is is kind of ascendant um there's also a nativist movement that's that's happening in the 1840s an anti-immigrant movement that's concerned about germans and irish and a lot of the german immigrants were jewish um in the 1840s and these groups kind of get together and uh, look to local governments uh like in cincinnati uh, or, or New York, or Boston, to start enforcing the Sunday Laws with some regularity. Sunday Laws had been on the books since the colonial period in most places, um, but they had often become dead letters and, and fallen by the wayside. But in the 1840s, there's this new movement um, to enforce the Sunday Laws. And many things uh, happen, but one thing that happens is that Jewish um residents of cities like Charleston, South Carolina, Richmond, Virginia, uh, and Cincinnati, Ohio, get picked up for violating the Sunday law. Um, for them in particular, they took Saturdays off. That was the day they didn't work because that was the day they celebrated their Sabbath, so they kept their shops open on Sunday. Um, and as they started to be arrested for violating the Sunday laws, they started to develop um, what I call in the book a minority rights politics they see themselves uh, as an oppressed minority, they say that the majority's Sunday law is infringing on their ability to choose when they want to work and when they want to rest, uh, their ability to make money um, and they start uh, hiring attorneys and pooling resources and eventually uh, petitioning uh, state legislatures and going to court to challenge the constitutionality uh, of Sunday laws along religious freedom grounds, but they use the language of minority rights when they do this.
0: Now, when we're talking about the moral majority, uh-huh. was it really? What, no, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Are we really talking about a majority where the reformers, uh, because all these immigrants are coming in, a lot of labor people, these are not mostly unchurched or Catholic or Jewish. Is this really a majority, or is it, are they claiming to be the majority?
1: It's tough to answer that question. I, I mean, the, uh, for the moral reformers who supported Sunday laws, who supported uh, anti-liquor legislation, you know, the, it, it's tough to say that they were the majority numerically. Uh, they were certainly the majority of influence. These are folks that had extremely deep pockets. Uh, They had access to the high-speed printing press. They flooded American society with pro-Sabbath, pro-Sunday law, anti-alcohol literature. Um, They petitioned state and local governments like crazy um, in order to get what they wanted, right? And they also, I mean, for the Sabbath issue, they looked around and they could still say numerically that the majority of Americans were Sunday celebrating uh, Christians. Right, And that Sunday was the day. Now, that didn't mean that, every, that they could prove that every one of those uh, uh, persons supported Sunday legislation and wanted Sunday bans. But they said, oh, this is a nation that has a Christian majority, that has a Sunday celebrating majority. Of course Sunday laws are right. And it's in that context that those reformers who are supporting Sunday laws are really... Grabbing onto the political ethos of the age, the democratic ethos, the, the ethos that said majority rule is what the American political system is supposed to be about, and they do that to justify Sunday legislation.
0: Right, but in order to do that, they had to circumvent the Republican system of government. Mm. Is that not right? They would have to. They would have to have direct, direct democracy that didn't allow it to go to the, through the legislature. Right. So that's why they came to the local option strategies, what you talk about in in one of your chapters in in regard to alcohol.
1: Right. This is particularly the case with the alcohol question in the 1840s. Um, I mean, it was fascinating to me to find that uh, America's kind of first experience with direct democracy or referendum-style democracy was with the alcohol question, right? So temperance reformers, people who were... Uh, uh, hostile to the consumption of alcohol, They, they went to state legislatures and they said, look, give us the opportunity locally in our communities to decide whether or not we want alcohol to be legally sold. So, they wanted state legislatures to pass the question to localities. In other words, previously, licensing laws had allowed um, local officials to give licenses out and, and thus authorize the sale of alcohol locally. Um, in the 1840s, there's a movement called the Local Option Movement, which uh, again allows local voters, and it involves state level laws that empower local voting majorities to in effect, uh, enact local prohibition, um, and it does this without, as you suggest, the representative Republican government. Right? It's direct democracy. It's people going to the ballot box and voting yes or no on the question of whether alcohol can be sold in their towns or counties.
0: I think that this uh, this feature of this ma- uh, moral majority. Still is definitely in play that people really need to understand why direct democracy doesn't work. Uh, (laughs) It sounds really great. We just all decide, you know, what we want, but there's a lot of people who lose out on that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this is the story that I tell in the 1840s. I mean, I I try not to take a side on that.
0: Right. I just did. I guess I just did, right? (laughs)
1: <laughs> a little bit, yes. Um, but I, I think th- this is the, this is the problem with direct democracy, especially when you're dealing with questions that involve particular rights. right? So businessmen in the 1840s who are in the alcohol industry had been often selling alcohol for decades. They had had a, a liquor license. That was kind of automatic. That gave them the right to, to sell alcohol. They had based their uh, business strategy on having that right and privilege. Their entire family livelihoods were dependent upon it. And now here comes the temperance movement that gets these new laws that allows voters to essentially eradicate their business at the ballot box. So it's in this moment that the liquor-dealing minority kind of coalesces and forms a backlash movement. Um, you know, starts in particular states, but they, they they do this quite consciously because they see that they are now an oppressed minority because the new laws have given local majorities the ability to uh, eradicate their businesses.
0: So tavern owners are getting hit by two things, Sunday laws, yes. and then complete uh, abolition, I guess, uh, or uh, prohibition. Prohibition, excuse me, prohibition. Yeah. Of alcohol, so they've got two wars to to deal with. Yes, their customers are German immigrants, uh, labor people who want to come in on Sunday or or any time they want uh, to have some enjoyment. So, how how effective were they?
1: Uh, how effective were the, the laws, the regulations?
0: <laughs> no, the, these these uh, minority. Uh, tavern owners.
1: See, sorry, yeah, um, I think they were pretty effective. Um, and, and there's two moments that I talk about in the book in the 1840s: is this local option moment where local voters are kind of deciding whether or not to eradicate the local alcohol industry. And then in the 1850s, there's a, a second moment of statewide prohibition. America's first era of prohibition is actually not the 1920s. It's in the 1850s, right? And I write about that in the book. Um, and in those two moments, the, the alcohol industry – coalesces, it unites in ways that it never had before to kind of rebuff the inroads of the temperance movement and their prohibitory laws. And to some extent, I mean, they're successful in the sense that they develop a political style that I describe in detail uh, in the book, where they kind of join forces, raise money, advocate for themselves, petition the legislatures, uh, attempt to influence elections, and most importantly, Um, go to court to challenge the constitutionality and legality of the the various regulations that are uh, assaulting their businesses and and, and ways ways of life. Um, And yeah, in the 1840s, the local option movement dies, uh, in part because of the resistance of um, the pro-alcohol minority. And in the 1850s, Um, statewide prohibition. This is called the era of the main law. Um, That also goes away for the most part, again, in large part because of the organized resistance of the pro-alcohol group.
0: This uh, reminds me of one of the things that you said at the beginning of of this talk, this conversation, about Massachusetts not allowing you to sell alcohol till noon, which seems, on Sunday, which seems like a compromise Okay, we, we can still kind of keep half the day a Sabbath, and then the rest of the day you can drink.
1: Yeah, during church hours, uh, you know, in the morning on Sunday, right? I think those laws have subsequently been changed. But, yeah, I mean, the story of Sunday legislation in the 20th century is, you know, is messy in the sense that state legislatures have or, or did Kind of change the laws to allow little little changes here, little changes there. You could, if you were a bowling alley, you could uh, apply for a special permit to open on Sunday mornings. And that's just a very minor example, um, but that that's the, the kind of maze of Sunday legislation that develops in the 20th century.
0: One of the most interesting parts of your book is when you begin talking about um, free blacks in the northern states. Yeah. What, what most of the time when we're talking about uh, black struggles and we talk a lot about the South and slavery. And this is free, these are free, supposedly free black people Uh who are encountering uh, a a whole range of uh, racially motivated laws, including uh, mixed not having mixed marriages, not having mixed schools with blacks and whites going to school together and transportation issues, which makes it very difficult for them to make a living if they're having to uh, figure out how to get to places so yes. let's and and I, and I think this <clears throat> these chapters these two chapters really illuminate the depth of the ra- racism outside of slavery per se right.
1: right yeah I mean good I'm glad we're talking about this I mean so half of the book is about sunday law battles and and alcohol battles and the other half of the book as you suggest, is about issues of, of racial equality and racial discrimination uh, in the pre-Civil War North. I think what, what many people know about the abolitionist movement in the in the pre-Civil War period, the movement to go after slavery and eradicate slavery, um, but I think less well known is the fact that abolitionists, black and white abolitionists, uh, you know, a good chunk of what they were trying to do at the time was eradicate racial prejudice in the American North. They looked around the American North and said, uh, this place, even though slavery is gone, uh, has a lot of problems. And the issues you talk about are the kind of public policy questions that concern them the most. Uh, interracial marriage, um, segregated schools, and uh, segregated public transportation. And each of those kind of issues... Contributed to the creation of this minority rights politics that I talk about in the book.
0: We tend to think about uh, these ideas of uh, Jim Crow laws really being a product of post Reconstruction, right? And you move it way back and really illuminate something that I've never, I have not seen anyone do. We knew, we knew it was there, but you've really done a great job of of showing. Uh, how these Jim Crow was was there a long, long time ago?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was you know, in my naivety as a as a as a young scholar, this is something that I I stumbled upon and didn't know enough about. Um, but yeah, I, I assumed that the late 19th century uh, Southern experience was the experience with Jim Crow, and that's where seg- racial segregation came from in the aftermath of slavery. But in fact, um, it was the antebellum, the pre-Civil War North. That taught Southerners have to, you know, kind of do racial segregation, um, and and uh, you know, a lot of this is was kind of a backlash to the abolitionist movement um, in the North. Anti-abolitionists were far more numerous, far uh, a much greater percentage of the population than abolitionists themselves, and abolitionists who were calling for things like racial equality. Um, turned some heads in in ways that uh, were were problematic for them, right? So, you know, the call for racial equality brought a backlash in the American North and brought, to some extent, the hardening of racial categories and new demands for racial segregation in the North.
0: So all these laws regarding mixed marriages and mixed schools, um, these were laws that had to be created in, in, in in the relatively new republic. Right. They weren't there. They were created because someone said, hey, wait a minute. If we're going to have public schools, right. we've got a problem with what do we do with uh, this mix of races. Right. So this was an, an intentional, this was not just a product of the culture so much. It, it was an it was a product of the culture, but I'm saying it was an intentional writing of legislation to do this.
1: Right. Yeah, it wasn't an, an, an automatic. It wasn't unthinking, right, I think is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. Um and and even if there were, like, the the Massachusetts ban on, on interracial marriage, for example had been around since the 18th century, but it took on new meaning in the 1830s and the 1840s as abolitionists were were calling for racial equality. Um, And as abolitionists looked to the statute book and saw that older ordinance and said, that's a problem, that smacks at the racial equality uh, that we're trying to foster in Northern society. But in other areas, like with rail car segregation, I mean, railroad transportation is new in the 1830s. It creates... New spaces where people are spending time together and all of a sudden people in the north are considering what it is going to be like to travel long distances in a rail car with strangers. And what if those strangers are not white? What if they're black? Right. And and it's in these moments that rail car companies institute policies uh, of, of racial segregation and they create what became known as the Jim Crow car where black people sat on northern trains.
0: So how did uh, they go about uh, some of the strategies, some of the advocacy that these people made, the the minorities did, in regard to mixed marriages and mixed schools and transportation? There was some legal. There was also persuasion, moral suasion.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the, the the tactics are, you know, a lot of what I talk about in the book and what I think uh, is fascinating. It tells us something new about the political culture of the day, that it wasn't all voting and party politics, but it was actually people organizing at the grassroots to fight for their rights as minorities. And in the case of, let's say, um, the school questions in three different Massachusetts towns in the 1840s, um, Black activists, often with the support of white abolitionists, got together to repel segregated schools, to demand integration. They did a variety of things. Uh, They petitioned the state legislature to intervene or to pass legislation banning uh, local school segregation. They boycotted schools in Boston and in Nantucket. Um, African Americans living in those communities said, we're not going to send our, 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 our children to the Jim Crow school, to the all-black school, because they were demanding integration and access to any of the schools uh, in the town. They also, like the other groups that I talk about in the book, they hire attorneys. They eventually do go to court. Uh, They challenge segregation uh, in Massachusetts before the Supreme Court of Massachusetts uh, by the mid-1850s. So all of these are, are part of their kind of tactics.
0: Now it was easier for for white abolitionists to take up these laws than it was for black people to actually advocate for themselves. And there, but there was resistance from black people regarding transportation, boarding trains they were not allowed to board, resisting no. being moved from one car to another.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean they they, they had what we might. I don't mean to be anachronistic, but I don't think it is. I mean, a kind of sit-in strategy developed uh, in the 18, 1840s. I mean, Frederick Douglass, for example, was one of many black activists who got on uh, a white rail car. And when the, the kind of uh, officials of the railroad came by and told him he had to move to the Jim Crow car, he refused. And in a classic incident, they dragged him out, and he's grabbing onto the seats and creating quite a scene as they're forcibly and violently dragging his body uh, from the white car and kind of throwing him uh, off to uh, the side of of, of the the railroad car. Um, But this continued in New York City as well. Um, in In the 1850s, a group of African Americans formed an organization, that they called the Legal Rights Association. This was a powerful foundational rights association um, that was dedicated to eradicating streetcar segregation in New York City. And one of the many things they did was kind of integrate the cars themselves. They would go into a car, streetcar reserved only for white folks and demand the right to ride. Um, and they have to deal with conductors and other streetcar uh, officials and occasionally the New York police that would be called upon to remove them, to eject them from the car. There are many kind of incidents and scenes where black men and black women uh, are trying to integrate the cars. They're being forcibly removed, and part of the strategy here is once they're forcibly removed, that gives them, to some extent, a cause of action in the court. They can sue um, for bodily injuries and other injuries, and that's part of the strategy that these African-American activists use to go after um, streetcar segregation in New York and elsewhere.
0: So this issue is, not, but it wasn't just plainly an issue of they wanted to ride with white people. This is, was about economics, right? Getting right. around.
1: Yeah, I mean the streetcar scenario is is, 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 a, is a great way to to consider this. I mean, cities in this period were growing huge, right? They're growing super super large, and you know if you were um, living in, uh, in a, the, the southernmost point of Manhattan and you needed to get to work um, in Midtown, walking was every day was really out of the question. The streetcars became an absolute necessity for moving around cities. And for white people, they got on the streetcars, or they had, if they were wealthy, they had their own carriages, and they could move around the city with relative ease. By contrast, African Americans who were uh, either banned from all of the streetcars or limited to just a small number of cars that allowed black people to ride, they had a much more difficult time, right? Getting to work, that just kind of everyday normal function that would have been automatic for white people was was a major challenge for African-Americans. So not having access to the streetcar meant they might not be able to get a job at a certain part of the city because it would be too far to get to.
0: Now the marriage laws, or the racial segregation, included the marriage laws, which also, I think, the school the school segregation was part of this. This idea that the races were not to mix, and when they mean mix, they meant sexual mix.
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so the cry of people who opposed abolitionists and their call for racial equality was racial amalgamation, mm-hmm. um, the word that the expression that they afterwards during the civil war gets 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 termed miscegenation, the mixture uh, of the races. And for anti-abolitionists and lots and lots of white northerners, they saw the mixing of the races, racial amalgamation, as a grave immorality, as a major, major problem, and one that justified um, bans on interracial marriage, bans on interracial schools, and, and bans on streetcars as well. Any, There was this suggestion that any kind of kind of contact between blacks and whites could lead to interracial sex, interracial marriage, the production of mixed race, uh, offspring, which folks in the antebellum North uh, white folks in particular thought was a, a grave immorality and would cause the destruction of uh, the American Republic.
0: And some of the things that you quote in your book uh, that were people that people said about this was pretty outrageous. Um, you know, why they didn't want uh, to sit next to a black person in a car. Some of the things that they they, they were just uh, very hard for us today to be sympathetic.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yet some of it's very familiar at the same time, right? I mean, uh, white folks in the north who complained about black people in streetcars, for example, complained that black bodies gave off a bad smell. Just automatically, they 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 and they they suggested that to, to sit next to a black per- if you were white to sit next to a black person was probably one of the worst things that could possibly happen. I mean, sitting next to an animal um, was you know to them maybe preferable, right? I mean, so they were they were they were saying these sorts of things, um, and there was, it was also gendered in the way that um white women were thought to be particularly vulnerable, um, that black men mixing with white women in, say, streetcars or public schools, that that would be a major problem. There's a suggestion that black men were kind of hypersexualized, and, if treated equally, would inevitably uh, covet the bodies of white women and want to marry them and have children with them and have sex with them and this sort of thing. So, you know, all the more reason why Blacks and whites need to be uh, kept separate in northern society.
0: Now, based on your study, which is really thorough, what uh, tensions remain between majority rule and minority rights or minority interests? Have we, Are we still working through that? And what, are the, what can we gain from what the 19th century taught us about this? Or even what, is there a fault, is there something fundamentally wrong with our Constitution? <laughs>
1: um, no, I'm not sure there is. I mean, I think all of the tensions between majority rule and minority rights that I identify in the mid-19th century are with us today. Uh, I think I think we should expect them to be with us today. I mean, what I'm suggesting in the book is not necessarily that majority rule is wrong and minority rights are right, but rather that the battle between the two, the tension between majority rule and minority rights is one of the things that makes American democracy go. In other words, this is what animates so much of public life uh, in the United States, this battle between what the majority is allowed to do constitutionally legally, legitimately ethically and what rights the minority has that kind of stand outside what the majority wants um, and I, I see that that tension very much at, at work in a range of political issues today in the United States and elsewhere I mean
0: but right. the minority groups have just exploded in the 20th century so now it's it's many 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 more groups.
1: They have. They've. 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 they've exploded. They've. They's, they've also changed. I don't think we we think about uh, German immigrants and maybe Seventh Day Baptists and liquor dealers and you know those folks as being influential minorities of today. And that's because the issues have changed. The era of prohibition and temperance have, have gone away. But uh, you know, in the twentieth century, after World War II, after the civil liberties and civil rights revolutions, yes. I mean the 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 range of of Groups claiming oppressed minority status has expanded and they've adopted the political style that I suggest was was forged uh, in the mid-19th century, not just African-Americans or uh, Latino-Americans. The disabled, Um, recent battle over same-sex marriage, I think is very much a manifestation of the minority rights politics that was kind of, again, pioneered uh, in the mid-19th century.
0: And one of the things that you point out in your at the end of the book is that some of the, the strategies that have been used by minority uh, in the late 20th century and used, to, used today were strategies that were first initiated by people in the antebellum period. Right. And, and you know, the same sort of stuff. And, you know, legal, legal challenges, moral suasion, uh, resistance of all sorts, passive resistance, um, so it's kind of interesting that these are not new, that these have been there for a long, long time. What do you right. believe is still the uh, historical problem that we still need to be addressing regarding this? What are the things that your book, you feel, really points to, but you didn't have time to unpack? Oh, I see. Um, <clears throat>
1: Well, I mean, I, so I focus on the mid-19th century and then I kind of draw connections in the epilogue to the 20th century and the 21st century. I do that pretty quickly and loosely. I think there's a lot of work to be done on minority rights politics in the late 19th and early 20th century, exploring how different groups uh, you know, advocated uh, for themselves in those periods. And I think I've touched on in the book many different tactics and particular sides of minority rights politics. I'm sure there are others that weren't in my purview um, that were perhaps driven by other issues beyond alcohol, Sunday laws, and interracial contact. I mean, that's what I focus on. Um, And I think those three issues prompted particular modes of political activism. Um, So there certainly could be others. I think exploring other divisive issues from the 19th and 20th centuries might shed different light on this political tradition. Might complicate it more.
0: So, how do you, yeah you're you're complicating democracy for sure. Hmm. I think. Yeah. You're, so, but how do do you think it's well? Your book is it's very nuanced. How does it change how historians might look at the 19th century?
1: Yeah, I think for people looking to understand political life and political culture in the 19th century. Pretty much we've focused on voting, um, the conflict over slavery that led to the Civil War and party politics. um, that The kind of battle between Whigs and Democrats and then later Democrats and Republicans um, and how different groups of people, different constituencies got behind those two parties. That's been kind of the story of Politics in 19th century America. And what I'm suggesting in the book is, and and other scholars are doing this in other areas as well, um, is that uh, American democratic politics in the 19th century was capacious. It was big. It was large. There were lots of different ways that Americans of, of that century were accessing the political, that they were making claims, that they were making demands, that they were trying to influence how the government worked worked and what public policy looked like and one of those ways that i suggest in the book is through this kind of tradition of minority rights politics this kind of grassroots organizational strategy using a variety uh, of techniques to influence uh, public policy and law Uh, so i hope that other scholars you know continue to explore different sides of the political system beyond voting and party politics
0: because it seems like what you're offering here is a bottom-up political history
1: right yeah very much I mean that's how I think about it I mean I, I, I talk about the the activists uh, that I write about the minority rights activists in the book I mean I describe them as as really making the choice to fight um, and that that fundamental choice which happened very much on the ground uh, in homes, you know, at the bottom-up kind of level is what what animated um, these uh, the, the kind of emergence of minority rights action in the 19th century.
0: Yeah, and these are these are issues that you point out from the bottom up, or issues that actually hit people at the at the daily life level. Yes, we're not talking here about you know grand constitutional concepts and debates over you know what the Constitution says or the branches of the three branches of government and how they're going to be balancing their power. Right. This is how you balance power between a majority and a minority. Right. Which is right. outside the, you know, the formal institution of, of government. Yeah. Of course affects it and tends to of course is going to end up there, but this balance of we think of balance of power uh, differently, I think, with your paradigm.
1: Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think that that, that's right. It's not about federalism or it's not about legislative branch versus executive branch versus judicial branch, although it is a little bit. But I mean, it's, it's, I mean, what you started, you know, talking about, it's about everyday people making decisions about what they're going to do on Sunday um how they're gonna raise their family, who they're gonna be friends with, what they're gonna drink, right? I mean these are kind of very everyday life decisions that, you know, might seem ordinary and not that significant to us, but in the in the in the nineteenth century they were very serious decisions. They were very intimate and deeply personal. And I think that's why it, it got so many of the groups that I write about. Um, to form and to get out there and to and to make claims and to try and balance the power of the majority that was trying to dictate their their everyday decisions with some you know some protections some rights protections but they do turn to right constitutions um, you know to 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 legitimate their claims about you know their rights that stand outside what the majority uh, is saying.
0: But you know, the uh, I think the, I think the best contribution you make is expanding expanding our notion of of uh, what democracy is, and also expanding our view of the abolitionists and what they were doing in the North beyond abolition of slavery. That there were so many racially loaded issues that were going on in the North. That I think it brings a little balance to. Uh, I think, recent work uh, that has been very focused on the question of slavery, which is a very important question, of course. But it seems like the other things that were going on are things that are still with us and we're still fighting those things. Yes. Many of these ideas are still there (laughs) of uh, integration and segregation. Uh, They still seem to be there. Now, what would you like for people to take away from your book when they read it?
1: Oh um I hope there I mean I really hope there are several takeaways. Um first I want people to to see that kind of concerns about minority rights, the popular struggle to defend the rights of minorities has kind of long been a part of the American political tradition. That what I've discovered here was developing in the mid-19th century, long before the civil rights movement of the, of the late 20th century that concerns about minority rights, an active concern, grassroots concern about minority rights, has been a major part of American democracy for 170 years. I mean, this is a long-standing part of American political culture. I mean, relatedly, I want people to see that concerns about minority rights are so often driven by moral politics, moral questions, moral issues, um, the tendency of kind of major moral questions to dominate public debate uh, in American politics and American life, and the tendency of moral questions to divide Americans into majorities and minorities. I'm talking about interracial conflict, Sabbath observance, and alcohol. Those are the big issues of the mid-19th century. But other big issues, including those, will 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 continue on and did continue on in the 20th century and certainly today in the 21st century like I said before I mean the battle over same-sex marriage major moral question major moral question driving minority rights politics um yeah I and mean, those are those are some some takeaways
0: so, uh, so America really was never monolithic there was yeah. always uh contest and and struggles and resistance and claims being made it wasn't this was not the minorities the rise of the minorities was not something that just happened let's say in the 1960s
1: right definitely not definitely not i mean certainly things are are different in the 1960s and there's a, one scholar calls it an age of a minority rights revolution but the general thrust the general concern that you know minority rights needed to be protected in american democracy that's a longstanding concern. and as far as it being a popular crusade driven by ordinary people, I think that that, that begins in the mid 19th century.
0: And you know, that's a long ways from what the founders had in mind when they were talking about minority rights.
1: Right yeah I mean this is where we started our discussion today, right James Madison, um, when he was writing in the Federalist uh, about you know the, con- the US Constitution protect- protecting minorities. Again, he was talking about elite property holders for the most part, right? He wasn't thinking about African Americans or Jewish Americans and Seventh-day Baptists. He certainly wasn't thinking about drinkers, right? Their, their rights were not on the table, right? He was, he was worried about the, the masses of Americans using hostile tax la- legislation and property confiscation kind of legislation that would go after James Madison and other uh, founding elites.
0: Well, you've been very uh, generous with your time, Kyle. I just have one final question. Sure. What are you working on now?
1: Oh, um, I have several projects um, that I'm working on. Two um, that maybe I'll say something about. They're they're somewhat overlapping. I mean, in conjunction with with writing so much about alcohol in this book about minority rights in the mid-19th century, I've started to teach a class at the University of Montana, that I call Intoxication Nation, Alcohol in American History. Um, And I think I have more to say about political, legal, and cultural struggles over alcohol than I was able to talk about in the book. So I'm going to continue to work on the the history of alcohol and think about the place of debates over alcohol uh, in popular and cultural conceptions of what it means to be a free society. Uh, in the United States,
0: so um, obviously uh, gender is going to be a part of that, right? Because women absolutely. are very involved in this.
1: Yes, yes, on the often on the limiting uh, alcohol consumption side of the story, but you know in the 1920s women are, are be- become you know big players in the repeal of prohibition. They mm-hmm. become at the they move to the forefront of the the repeal crusade. So yeah, it's a complicated story. So I'm trying to get into that. Um, for one project and another project is is kind of loosely related. Um, thinking about the politics of, of personal liberty in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, um, this is the the era of the growth of the progressive era state. Um, the progressive era state is doing a variety of things, including looking to ban and prohibit alcohol. And I'm I want to study the kind of backlash to that.
0: Yeah, because what's interesting is you you talk about in your book you're talking about groups. Blacks, you're talking about tra- tavern owners, labor, Jewish immigrants, <laughs> German, labor people. You're talking about groups. And yeah. it seems like there's a – so you don't talk so much about individuals. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, one of the takeaways uh, in terms of thinking about how minority rights politics operates is you need a group. You need to have a group of people fighting a battle. This is not a battle that historically has been won with particular individuals uh, leading the charge. You need that kind of grassroots, bottom-up political mobilization of a wide range of people who are saying, hey, the majority is going too far here, right? Um, So, yeah, that's one of the things I'm I'm interested in, how groups form, why they form, how they act, uh, and what kind of change they're able to affect.
0: Okay, thank you, Kyle. Uh, Thank you you. to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Drop me a line at newbooks.americanstudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.